Blog Talk Radio. everyone, and welcome to Ammo Our Chat. I'm Linda Fissler. Uh, tonight with us we have Tony Pro and Michael Harding, and Michael is a sponsor of Weekend with the Masters, so this is one of our Weekend with the Masters series of interviews. And we'll talk about Michael's discovery about oil paints, and we'll also talk to Tony about why he uses Michael's paints and uh, what, you know, what discoveries that Michael found uh, during, I guess we could say his college years, actually, and, um, you know, why... His his uh, handmade oil paints are so much better than what the mass marketed, um, if you will, mass produced paints are. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about their the art scene in the United Kingdom, as Michael's from uh, the United Kingdom, and we'll get Tony and Michael's uh, perspective on the current art scene out there. Um, we also have sh- uh, uh, actually advertised, if you will, some raffles and contests. Um, we're raffling off a couple aprons, painting aprons, and we're also going to be raffling off some tubes of paint, Michael's paints, and Tony's DVD. And we'll have a little bit more about that uh, as we get into the um, the program. Uh, I wanted to actually get the show started as quickly as we could because we have a lot of great questions for Tony and Michael, and we've got a lot of learning that we need to do. One more update before I uh, bring in our guests and our and my co-host, the Ammo Painting Challenge, which can be found at www.ammopaintingchallenge.com, has been extended until July 10th. So you've got until midnight tomorrow night to enter your paintings. And uh, the actual challenge this month is called painting or Palette Change-Up. And what we're doing is giving you a limited palette, a choice of two. You can submit an entry uh, for each of the palettes, if you'd like, and um, more information can be found on that either on the Ammo blog or out at the Painting Challenge website. So, hope you guys will all tune in and give that a, a shot. Um, you can talk or ask questions, I guess you could say, by using the the chat window that is down at the bottom of the show page. If you're looking at that page. Uh, if you want to type in a question there, I'll be glad to try and get that on the air to Tony or to Michael. And please indicate who you want the question to go to if you do decide to post a question. So with that, let's get started with the show itself. And I want to bring in my two co-hosts. Um, first, I'll bring in Blanche. Hi, Blanche. How's the weather in North Carolina? Hi, Linda. Um, it's it's going to cool down tomorrow finally. I just got back from a couple of weeks in, um, down on the South Carolina coast, and it was rather hot down there. <laughs> Too hot for plein air painting. <laughs> I took a lot of uh, took a lot of photos and had a wonderful time, but it was definitely hot down there. Yeah, we um, we had temperatures heat index up to 113, which I think a lot of the country did. So, and, and we finally had that that um, temperature heat wave break. So I know the cooler weather is on its way to you. So. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be glad to get it. Yeah, and then I also want to bring in Barbara uh, Coleman. Hello, Barbara. Hey, everyone. Anything new out out your way? Well, 
Yeah, I'm out in San Francisco this week, and um, spent yesterday at the Jean-Paul Gaultier show at the De Young Museum. So that was very, very interesting. And then um, I wanted to announce a nice, a nice award that I got at the OPA National Show, which was the Seascape Award of Excellence. And since the yeah. show was judged by Kling Ho, that was a real big, um, one of my big heroes. So I was enormously pleased and and uh, still surprised. So. Yeah, but congratulations on that. I, I was going to mention that if you if you didn't mention that, but big congratulations. That what a, what a great feat and honor. So wonderful. That is that is exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, next I'd like to bring in Michael Harding, and I want to talk a little bit about Michael. Michael started his oil company back in 1982 while he was studying fine art, and Michael's love of Rembrandt resulted in a desire to recreate Rembrandt's paint, paint effects and glorious colors in his own work. And while he was doing that, he found that the paints uh, wouldn't behave the same way, today's paints. And after many aborted attempts, Michael decided to mix his own paints, and his desire to produce paints that are the same quality and consistency of the paints used by the old masters. Um, as a result, he started supplying the Royal College of Art and the Victoria and Albert Museum. So we'll talk more about Michael's findings. Uh, Michael's website, by the way, if uh, you want to do some looking around while you're listening to the program, is www.michaelharding.co.uk. Welcome, Michael. Hi, everybody. So we're very Great happy to, to have you on. Yeah, yeah. So we're looking forward to tonight's discussion. So. Excellent. And then yeah, I, I mean, want... I'm... oh, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. No, no. I was just going to simply say it's great to be here, and I'm enjoying the nice, fine weather that uh, this country provides. Um, <laughs> even the 113 degrees heat, huh? <laughs> oh, I'm not in 113. I think it's probably in the 90s. I'm just um, outside Santa Rosa in California at the moment, enjoying lovely blue skies. Well, there's two of us here that are really jealous because the next person that I'm bringing in, Tony Pro, is also out in California. And Tony started painting seriously back in the 1990s. Although it might seem as if art was always his destiny, his father, Julio, is an award-winning wildlife artist and his brother, Greg, is a professional illustrator. And Tony specializes in portraits, still lights, and landscapes. Uh, he likes painting his subject directly, using natural light as much as possible rather than copying photographs. And Tony believes that he must uh, paint beyond just capturing his subject's likeness, wanting to capture his subject's spirit. And if you've seen any of his artwork, which I'm sure most of our listeners have, it's just he does such a wonderful job of that. So we'll be sure to, to talk to him about that a little bit. And he spends many hours getting to know his subject, which actually also helps him capture their essence. Um, Tony treasures his Best of Show award from OPA for his painting Mother's Love. He has numerous other awards in his two-disc instructional DVD, which Tony has graciously offered up as part of the, the raffles um, that we'll talk about later. And then Tony teaches at the California Art Institute and gives workshops. Um, we have some of Tony's pictures on our show page, and we also have a picture of Michael, uh, who's mixing up some paints there. I think actually Michael can tell us a little bit about that painting in a little bit, but welcome, Tony. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am doing wonderful. Good evening to everybody out there. 
Uh, it's great to uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me, and uh, this should uh, this should be an exciting conversation. Yeah, so uh, we're we're very honored to have both of you with us. So I don't know if I mentioned this or not earlier, but Michael is sponsoring the weekend with the Masters. And um, Tony, have you ever have you ever been invited to weekend with the Masters? Uh, I've been a few times. Um, okay. The very first year they had it, I uh, I actually did a lot of uh, filming for them. Um, uh, here and there, so it was a good time. Had oh, a lot good. of fun. Okay. Great, great. So we're going to get into the first topic. Um, Blanche, I believe that you're on top for the first question. Yeah, um, let's see. I'll start with a, a question for Michael. Um, I think it's important for folks to know that you paint, besides making the paint. Um, tell us about your work. Uh, what do you paint and Talk a little bit about your art journey. Sure, yeah. I mean, as uh, Linda said when she was introducing the, the program, I had a, a huge respect for Rembrandt, as I still do. Um, I, for me, I think that uh, he's the ultimate portrait painter. And, yeah, the, I started painting really because, uh, like most people, there's always something that moves and inspires and after uh, first encounters with landscapes, I moved on to portraits, and this was very much to do with my, my sort of quite unremarkable student career. And it, it's, I mean, to this day, I, I probably paint two or three times a year, I must be absolutely honest. I'm not an artist who has to constantly visit the easel, the canvas. So I find that working with the paint for me is, is, is almost like an art form in itself. And, yeah, I, I, I do regard myself a, a, as an artist, and I think this, this, if you like, allows me an affinity with artists. We, we speak the same language, and it's, it's rather wonderful, I think, to be, you know, as a, as a paint maker to be able to, to do two things, communicate with the artist and also make a product. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes you... Uh, you come at it from a different perspective from a lot of uh, manufacturers who, who make oil paint. You really sure, yes. Artist yourself. I mean, I try and make paint that would appeal to me, and hopefully and fortunately it seems to have appealed to a lot of other people, including Tony, and please to say, I make it, I actually want to shock people. I want to shock people with the, with the beauty and brilliance of color. Um, it's still an ever-expanding universe for me, and it's just a, it's a wonderful material to be working with. We, we only make oils and a number of mediums, and for me, there alone is a is a, a whole entire universe. Oh. Michael, I I wondered how long have you been making paint, and what what led you to manufacture your own paint? I first started making paint probably about 1981, 1982. Um, as I was ending my, as I stated, my quite unremarkable career as a as a fine art student was well, not really a career it's more student student life i as as linda said i i found that i just simply couldn't recreate the uh the effects even if you think of the background of a of a rembrandt say being a, a just a, a brown background i found that the paint surface didn't even resemble it it was as different as as a watercolor or an acrylic can be from oil it just didn't resemble it in any single way and fortunately, at the time, I had one or two tutors at college, professors as you call them here, who had quite a good understanding of, uh, of the history of materials and 
and, and pointed out almost as an elementary fact that, well, of course, at one time artists used to all make their own paint. And suddenly a light went on in my head because I thought, well, if artists used to make their own paint, why can't I? Um, I'd always thought that a, 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 the paint had to be made probably in a paint factory with people walking around in white coats called Professor and all the rest of it. It was actually an oil paint in, in principle is a remarkably simple system. And so I endeavoured to start making my own and immediately, immediately I was getting, you know, fantastic results. And not only did my, my painting ability jump forward with this almost new material, friends, other artists started coming to me saying, well, you know, what's happened? Your work's got sort of, uh, it's, it's sort of leapt forward, it's more luminosity. And I very proudly, of course, said, well, I'm now making my own paints. And uh, lo and behold, they wanted to try some as well. And naturally, I, I gave a few around. And the next thing I know, they were beating a path to my door demanding more. And inadvertently, I, I sort of put myself into business. I mean, my first idea was to simply make paint enough to subsidize my living so that I probably wouldn't have to go and work as a waiter or, or do bar work. I thought this would be rather a nice notion because... It would still be with very much in the, in the sort of the realm of the artist making paint, and little did I know at that time it was going to be a way of life for me. For while well, I'm now 53, uh, this this was in my sort of early 20s. So what we I can't remember exact dates, but as I said, I think it was some, since 1981, 1982 that I first started. That that is remarkable. Did you have any background in chemistry, or or how did you first start? Putting the paints together, get the effects you wanted. Because I've I've never well, never attempted it. I, I I picked up one or two books. One very memorable one, which I still recommend to everyone, is the the Ralph Mayer Handbook of Methods and Materials. And I'll be absolutely honest with you, there's everything in there you'd ever need to know. Uh, in, oh, and I, I could probably exaggerate slightly, but yeah, the, the fundamentals are in there, and that that was um, my point of reference. There was certainly enough in there to, to allow me initially to hand grind, and and that's how it was. I, I don't have a chemistry background. I think I think perhaps in some ways that on occasions it might hinder. On other occasions, I think it probably helps because I I try and solve problems with my eyes and with mm. the texture of paint rather than sort of. I'm not saying that uh, a paint chemist couldn't solve a, a problem with another another means, but I think in some ways I, I think of myself as a, a, bit, a bit like a chef in a kitchen. You taste this, you taste that, you put a pinch of this and you put a pinch of that in, and it, it's literally done by um, deft of hand on the day. It's 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 one of those intuitive things. I like to like to feel I've picked up a certain skill, and I, I knew principles of chemistry, but there was, there was no moment I'd ever purport to describe myself as a chemist. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. Where where do you manufacture your paint, and how large is your operation now? Well, we are currently manufacturing in the in the hills of Wales, South South Wales, England, uh, in a, just outside a place called Cumbrown, spelled C W M B R A N. Rather a extraordinary sounding name. I know. I'm still learning to say it myself. Um, we've been in this particular place for about three years. Before that, we were in Whitechapel, London, famous for the Jack the Ripper murders. And that was real real city stuff. I mean, we were in the sort of wonderful, wonderful parts of London that um, 
great history, but not particularly helpful for manufacturing paint. We were, of course, subjected to all the, the modern problems of business uh, has high high rents and high rates and high high local taxes, which for a business like mine, we could almost be anywhere. And so mm. we moved it to Wales to take advantage of huge amounts of space. Uh, like most countries, of course, they've suffered the we've suffered the recession quite enormously. And I was able to literally choose a, a wonderful site on an industrial estate, which is which is great for our purposes, high ceilings and. Um, and, and a sensible rent. So I now currently employ, including myself, I think we're eight. Uh, and I've got a very, um, very supportive team of people. Uh, a couple of the lads I've taught to make paint, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, I think they do it every bit as well as myself. And I think you can probably imagine that I wouldn't, I wouldn't entrust people with something which would be so personal and so important to me. And I, 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 I'm back in the UK probably... Probably half of my life is spent sort of traveling, representing the company, and the other half is, is back in Wales making the paint, and uh, I just like being there. I mean, I, it's almost like getting my daily fix. I have to smell oil. It's, I have to put my fingers in it. It's, one of, it's, it's just a way of life for me. Okay, Michael, I'm getting a couple questions from the folks on the chat room. Um, they want you to repeat the name of the book that you mentioned. Ralph Mayer, The Handbook of Methods and Materials, if I'm remembering the correct wording of the title. We could perhaps um, I, uh, put this up on, up, up on your, your website later for people. Uh, yeah, would that, would that you, help? Yes, absolutely. What we'll do is we'll include that in the blog, and I'll also um, add it to our Amazon recommended books Store that we have, and I'll yep. put a link in there as well. Um, if you could, if you could be so kind to have either you or Karen send me the name of the book, I'll be happy to Most do all the other legwork. Yeah. Uh, thank I you very much. And also, I believe we classic. also have it on our. We also have website under recommended reading. I'm I'm 100% certain it's listed on our our website and on on recommended books. Okay, I'll have a look there too. So great. Um, and then um, you know, I can see that one major difference between you and the, the mass-produced paints is, is your care to make sure that each batch, if you will, of, of paint that you make is, is hitting that standard that you've created. Is there also a difference in the pigments? Um, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. It's certain colors... I'm probably working with exactly the same pigment as, as the other guys, the other guys being the big manufacturers. And I, I also just want to state that although I make paint as I would like to find it, I don't find anything wrong with the other manufacturers. And I, I constantly encounter artists who have been using all the big names for, for decades. And I say to them, well, if you're happy with it, then please continue. There's, there's no reason why you shouldn't. And I, I think that they, in, in some cases, make very fine paint. I... I just like to make my paint in a slightly different way. Um, I like to think of mine as more of a concentrate. And take cadmiums, for instance. There's, there's probably about five or six pigment companies around the world who manufacture cadmium pigments. And I'm probably using exactly the same sources as, as, as some of the big manufacturers. But I, I just choose to handle it in a different way. 
uh, put in more pigment, and my my whole mm-hmm. uh, ethos I think is different. I mean, I, I want to I want to shock people by the by the power of colour, and the one easy way you can do that is with pigment layers. And fortunately, when you do that, you also increase the permanency, because obviously it's the pigment that's that's going to be the light fast uh, component. So the more I do one, also the more fortunately I do the other. Mm-hmm. And it means that the artist has a great vivid experience. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I also, uh, I wanted to ask, where do you find your pigments and do you have any amusing stories that you might want to share? Oh, well, as you can probably imagine, the pigments uh, generally come from all sorts of strange places around the world. Um, the industrial ones, like I've mentioned, the Capins, uh, are, are fairly readily sourced and pay everywhere from Germany to Italy to France, uh, South America also, and titanium dioxide. There's, there's probably 500 companies in the world making titanium dioxide, as in, as in for titanium white. But of course, there's some more obscure things like lapis lazuli, which we, we import ourselves from Afghanistan. And that is, for me, the, the creme de la creme. To be able to to be able to include that in our our sort of uh, our lines is is fantastic. It's such a it's it's beautiful, and of course has such historic consequence. Uh, for those of you who might not know, it's the um, the predecessor to ultramarine blue, and it's made from a natural stone, which is is dug out of the, the foothills of Afghanistan and ground up accordingly and and finds its way to Wales where we combine it with linseed oil and and, and grind it further, hopefully to make a wonderful colour. And I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, our, our vermilion, um, genuine vermilion mercuric sulphide, and that comes from China. Uh, a wonderfully exotic pigment and... Uh, from my point of view, I think it's. I mean, I know Tony will probably speak about it in a minute because I think he's. I, I, I understand he's recently become addicted to it, and <laughs> uh, for me myself as a portrait painter, it's it's wonderful stuff. So yes, okay. that's the sort of. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael. I didn't mean to to cut you off no, there. It's okay. I mean, I, I mean, that's it. I mean, I've I've had all sorts of funny things arrive in in strange wooden crates with old-fashioned straw all around them from different parts of the world. And, uh, yeah, um, I, th- I, th- I think that the, the even more striking is the literally the hundreds of thousands of, of, of different uses I see pigments ending up in, not just onto, onto flat canvases. I mean, we have a, an artist who's just painted a, a, a Steinway piano, which we also <coughs> feature on our, on our website, uh, a very good friend of mine, Mia. She, I mean, she's a remarkable Argentinian artist, and she's painted this piano, which is, of course, a, a three-dimensional uh, object. Um, we had a, 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 an artist recently who painted a Tori gate, which is a, I think I'm right in saying, it's, it's, it's a Japanese gate to the sort of the afterlife, and that's actually painted in vermilion, which I believe oh, is yeah. a traditional paint before. So, okay. yes, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. And, it's, I, you know, I, I feel flattered that I can be... I like to think a little bit a part of everyone's work. Uh, it's, it's a great life. Okay, and and Tony, why don't we bring you in and have you talk a little bit about the vermilion that um, that Michael has mentioned? Well, the uh, the vermilion for me, um, it's interesting because I've never worked with it before, but I've always read about it. Um, 
you know, uh, Sargent's one of my big heroes, and uh, Sargent used it uh, regularly uh, regularly in his palette. Uh, particularly if you, um, for those of you that have seen uh, in person, and obviously everyone has seen pictures of it, but the, his famous Madame X painting, um, the flesh tones in that are, um, you know, Sargent would use for these, to get these really, um, these really pale flesh tones of, uh, you know, very fair-skinned um, models. He would use a combination of, uh, of uh, vermilion, his vermilion with viridian, and then uh, you know he'd be using some form of uh, lead white with, and then like a bone black, and just that combination. But he used he used the vermilion to really uh, increase chroma in areas that he needed the warmth, and then when he wanted to cool things, he would tailor it back by adding either you know uh, black and white or or counter it with viridian. And uh, you know I've I've always tried to do it with. Rosa, or I've tried to do it with other reds, but the Michael's Vermilion um, does what Terra Rosa doesn't do, uh, which is it's it's a it's a lot more subtle. Terra Rosa is a much stronger, more intense color, and it's also um, it's a lot easier for me to work with. Uh, it's it's just really hard to describe why it works so well but 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 with the vermilion i can actually feel like i'm sort of trying to go after these flesh tones that i've been trying to get for a while um but it's it's a it's an amazing amazing uh color and uh you know since i met michael and he was um kind enough to to give me a tube of it to try out i'm just i can't get enough of it now i'm working on a piece now uh, that I'll be finished with in the next week or so, and I'll be posting images of that. But I'm using the exact same uh, flesh formula as Sargent did, um, you know, for his Madame X piece, because the, mm -hmm. the, the model the model that I'm painting uh, has very fair skin and sort of the similar color hair that Madame X does. It's not in any it's not the same pose or anything like that. But uh, certainly, I was going after sort of the same flesh flesh look. Okay. Blanche? Michael, let me ask uh, you a question. You're often referred to in the art world as the color man, and I think you've touched a little bit on what, what makes you so driven about color and your love of making paint. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happening with the lead white. Yeah, okay, lead whites are, are very difficult. Uh, last year, the, the one remaining major producer of lead carbonate uh, basically carbonate that is in, in the north of England suddenly stopped making this pigment it, it was mainly used for cable insulation purposes so it has an industrial use and the artist uh, if you like following in the tails of that the shirt tails of it um, so lo and behold suddenly we couldn't get the pigment which, which has really caused us some major problems We've literally searched the entire planet. We've we've come up with one or two other sources which we're evaluating. The tricky thing, of course, with a lead carbonate is that the uh, you can have a lead carbonate, but it doesn't exactly have the it doesn't resemble the true chemistry. And as I stated, I'm not a chemist. I'm not going to start trying to pretend I am and explain that. It doesn't handle in the same way. It doesn't have the same oil absorption and other 
other things from a sort of a pain maker's point of view aren't the same. But we've we've recently discovered um, at least one other source which I'm, I'm very interested by. But further to this, in the meantime, because we of course were working under the premise that we would no longer be be able to source it anywhere, I have started making um, lead carbonate in what's called the traditional stack process. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, I'll, I'll just explain a little bit about this. For centuries, the, the way that um, pigment was made, the, the white pigment, because it was the only white pigment which was available, uh, you'd take lead suspended over vinegar in, in clay pots, and around the outside of the clay pot, you'd literally bury it in, in horse dung. I know that probably half the country is now probably laughing at this, but uh, the reason you have to use horse dung is because horse dung, believe it or not, is high in carbonic acid. And so it, it aids the, uh, the chemical reactions that are taking place. And what effectively happens is it's very simple. The, if you think in the same way as we've all seen iron or steel, when it rusts, it goes that orange color. Well, when, when lead corrodes, it goes white. And in this case, because you're you're over the, uh, the the vinegar, which is acetic acid, you have uh, lead acetate, and also with the carbon coming in from the the horse dung, hence you get a, a combination of different types of molecule, and that's the traditional way of making it. And so we we started doing our our first initial runs of it, and I've have produced a few kilos, and I'm evaluating it. I I. Of course, this is something that we will start selling alongside uh, the more economic mass-produced one, assuming that, that uh, the mass-produced one turns out to be okay. So from my point of view, it, it's actually uh, helped us in a way, that I, although it's, it caused a few problems in terms of supply for the artists. It's, it's forced me to actually examine the possibility of, of making this pigment, and we've, we've started doing that now in Wales. And so you know, we, we're, we're getting to a point that within a... A year or so, hopefully, we'll have, we'll have proper sort of production volumes of the stuff, and I'd like to think that's good news for everyone. And at the same time, along, alongside the more industrial one. So, for the um, the aficionados out there, uh, we'll be producing a lead white alongside a lapis, alongside a vermilion. Uh, I've also sourced a, a rose matter. I'm digressing a bit, I know, but I'm just rather excited to tell everyone about this sort of stuff. But um, Rembrandt didn't, as far as I know, paint with vermilion. He used rose matters, and uh, fortunately, most of his rose matters remained light fast. Uh, it's it's a pigment which is it is slightly fugitive, um, and of course, modern colors are in crimson again is slightly fugitive. But I just think that what these colors bring to the party, they're so important to have on the palette. But yes, uh, coming back to lead whites, yes, hopefully there's some good news there. So watch this space. Okay. That's fascinating. Um, You're going back to the old way of painting it. Tell us the difference. Um, well, there's the lead white, and then there's titanium and zinc white. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, titanium, I mean, I can't remember dates of when these things were particularly invented and, and brought into use for artists. Uh, yeah. Uh, many artists, what works for one artist doesn't always work for another. And, of course, you also have to consider toxicity. Some people simply don't want to have colors like vermilions, which has got mercury in it, or uh, lead, white, obviously lead in, lead in it. 
And so they might look at titaniums or zincs, and they all do different things. A zinc is a more translucent, uh, less covering power, but makes brilliant intermixes. I mean, if you really want to get a nice, sharp, zingy pink, that's the white to be looking at. Um, titaniums, you know, I personally think they're probably our biggest seller. I have to be careful how I say this, but I think of all the whites, they're probably the most um, overrated because... I find that when I mix a titanium white, for instance, say with the cadmium red, you don't get a, a, a bright, brilliant, zingy pink. You tend to find that it tends to drift off into the into the bluey-gray area. And I'm sure there's there's plenty of people who can tell you why that would be to do with particle shape and size. Um, on the other hand, um, zinc is, is, is raising a few concerns at the moment because... Uh, a few people have, uh, feel that they've observed uh, delamination or uh, flaking is another way of describing it. So, again, we're having to sort of re-examine these pigments. Um, each pigment has a different strength in terms of its, what, we, what you could describe as film strength. Um, think of it as, as sort of trying to build your painting with concrete. And uh, probably the strongest physical, physical white of all would be the lead ones. They literally do dry like a rock, and that's that's why we also like them as priming coats. Um, and zinc is probably the softest of them. I, I, I certainly think that zinc has a, has a, a place in the artist's domain. And even if we find it has, it raises concerns over delamination. I think that uh, depending upon how you handle it and the proportions you have with each, will uh, make a difference. But um, no, I mean, each white will do its own thing. And I, I, I really urge artists to sort of experiment and play, get to know each one and find out which one works for them. And uh, people often ask the question, which one should I use? And I say to them, well, which one do you like? Which one do you think looks, which, you know, which one appeals to you? And the same with colors. People often say to me, well, which colors should I start with? And I, I say, well, well look, at a, look at a color chart, look at, look at tubes. Um, for instance, all our tubes carry a, a, a real paint swatch on the outside anyway, so you're, you're looking at real paint. And you have to like, from my point of view, you have to like the colours. I mean, I know there are, there are artists out there who probably want to create certain situations where you might want to call it an anti-painting. You might want to create a situation where it's not a nice experience to look at. 99% of artists want to create things which I think are, it's to do with beauty. Um, for my own worship of nature, when I, you know, when I paint, be it a portrait or landscape, you, I, I feel the starting point is colors you have to like. Yeah, colors that inspire you. I'm, I'm inspired to try some of these white. I've never, I usually paint with titanium white, and uh, I'd love to mix these other whites. And uh, uh, well, there's, there's also uh, the consideration, not only we do a number of whites, but we also use a number of oils. Uh, for instance, our titaniums, we do, we do two titaniums. We do one in safflower oil, which is slower drying and a paler oil. Uh, we do a titanium number two, which is in linseed. And, and the reason we do that is because, one, I want, to, I want to give artists something interesting to play around with, which has have different handling qualities. But the other more significant thing is because the safflower oil is a paler oil, when it dries, it, it will tend to produce a more... Uh, lighter, cleaner white, and that's very important to some artists. Um, oh, yeah. What tends to happen 
that the, the oil comes to the surface of the paint and ends up with a sort of a glaze effect of its own. And so that's, that's really why we have a, n a number of oils. I also make a lead carbonate uh, with, with walnut oil. And um, uh, I, I, I think it's worth explaining that, that the reason for that is that in Europe in sort of the old, the old days, that walnut oil and linseed oil were sort of used in equal parts. And um, I just thought it'd be rather interesting to, to bring that to the, back to the artist domain. There, there are other color makers that that also um, um, manufacture using walnut oil, um, but it was, I, you know they, they all do different things. And, and I just think the handling quality is always different, and people can create different effects. So that's that's the that's the other thing we we I try and do. Now the walnut oil is slower to dry. I think you had said that you don't have dryers in your paint. Is that correct? I beg your pardon. Could you repeat that? Um, you do not add dryers into your paint. Any agents to speed up the drying? Is that correct? I do not, with one exception, and that's we take our titanium number two and we put dryers in that. And that is the only one. It, it clearly states it's on the label, and I'd actually prefer people not to use it. And I know it might sound a strange um, reverse endorsement, but I, I prefer artists to understand their palette and, and realize why colors take a long time to dry, and that, that's actually something they should, they should uh, uh, you know, allow from work with. But as I say, so many artists want paint nowadays to dry more quickly, so we did introduce what we call titanium number three, which has a, a minor amount of dryers in it. Dryers can, can harm paint. They can either make it wrinkle or crumble over a, lo a long period of time, and, and that's, that's why I keep, I keep away from them. Also, personally, for my own painting, I, I like working wet into wet, and it allows me to return to a painting maybe for one, two, or more days, rework, remobilize areas, uh, and gives you the ability to blend. We also put dryers into one of our, our mediums, which is the glaze medium, our, our PM2, paint medium 2. Um, otherwise, that literally would take weeks to dry. Um, probably not in a Californian climate, as I look out of my window here, but um, certainly in cold parts of England, um, it, it, would, it would be impractical for people. So, so often we, tr we, we try, I think what we have to do is remember that these are nature's gifts and we, there's no such thing as permanent paint. Uh, when you have mediums such as, say, acrylics, you know, they, they are a very designed range and that's a different creature altogether. Mm -hmm. Michael, I've got a, a question here. When you were talking about walnut and linseed uh, were used in equal parts, do you mean mixed together? Oh, um, sometimes they were, yes. Uh, there's various tests that various galleries have done um, uh, on paint samples that they've had either from the, the back of uh, you know, paintings or little bits of flakes that have come off that have sadly not been so sort of um, uh, attached to the canvas. And various galleries can do various tests and, and find out the, which oil was used. Now, my, my point was that um, if you think about it, uh, we get linseed oil from flax, we get walnut oil from walnuts, of course, trees. And various parts of Europe, of course, were very good at growing certain things. And so the uh, the Renaissance probably largely used uh, walnut, 
um, Lindsay Doll was used, but you tended to find that artists would either go for one or the other. Uh, they behave in very, very similar ways. Um, they both produce very strong paint films. And there was, a, there was a misconception for quite a few years that somehow Warnot Oil went rancid. Well, this is completely untrue. When you think of an oil going rancid, it is actually drying, it's polymerizing, so it's doing its thing anyway, which it's meant to do. So there was a bit of a myth introduced, and I, th I think we've got over that now. But for me, it's, I, I like to be able to bring as many uh, interesting materials to the artist's studio as I possibly can. Great. <laughs> Michael, you mentioned um, three very exotic colors already, the lapis lazuli and the vermilion and the rose batter, um, all of which, you know, make me want to just paint right now. But do you have a, a favorite color, and what do you think is your most unique color? Uh, well, I mean, I'll try and... Um I think the one that I find probably the most beautiful to look at is the LSR in crimson. I also enjoy making it. I just love the deep, rich, ruby, clarity colors. And uh, that's, personally for me, I, I love what it does. And I, I also like the way that the pigment behaves. It's an enormously thirsty pigment. So in other words, a little bit of pigment takes up a lot of oil. It's, it's quite phenomenal. Um, for those of you who may not quite understand what I'm saying there. If you think of it this way, if you pick up a tube of Alizarin crimson in one hand and then pick up a, a color like uh, a titanium or a zinc or a cadmium, you'll notice it's very heavy. And those pigments have very low oil absorption. Well, Alizarin crimson is the other way around. It has very high oil absorption, and so you're getting closer to the actual weight of the oil as the overall average weight of the paint. So a tube of um, again, something like Prussian blue or uh, the phallocyanine blue, all these organic colors will, will feel very light in your hand, and that's because they're, they're high in oil content. And it's not because there's not the, the maximum amount of pigment in there, it's simply because it's a very thirsty pigment. I could leave out half the pigment and put a heavy filler in, and people are immediately thinking, oh, even his LSR in crimson is heavy, feel the weight of that. And, and, by, uh, and at that point, in my mind, I'd have committed a virtual crime. You, you can't do that. I think that all these pigments should be allowed to behave in their own way. They're, they're all beautiful. They all do their own thing. Oh. Well, how many colors do you offer? I oh, it chops and changes. I mean, sometimes we have availability problems, and of course we've we've talked about the the, the availability problems at the moment with the lead whites. Um, I think we're at about 75, 76. I'm about hopefully, as I've stated, to, to add a rose madder and the genuine stack white lead. I'm also looking at a number of earth colors, so we, we, I'm hoping to add at least another 10 within the next sort of year or so. Hmm. But currently 75, I think. Um, Branch, I believe you have a couple questions for Tony. Why don't we move on to huh. that? Yeah. yeah, Tony, I'd love to ask you, Tell us why you use Michael's oil paints. What's your first impression of them was when you started? Well, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, paint is so particular to the artist. Um, and, I, you know, I've been using several different types of paint over the years. And um, I've found 
that for me, um, a linseed oil vehicle uh, for paint is is does what I need paint to do. Um, I can't use I can't use walnut oil based paint. I can't use poppy oil based paint uh, because the the qualities of the way that paint operates um, doesn't work for me. Uh, that's not to say it's not good or anything like that. It's just you know everybody has to sort of experiment what works for them and how they get certain um, you know certain uh, looks with the paint or being able to put you know put the paint down on a surface in a certain way. Um, for me, the linseed oil uh, works the best, and so um, I was I I started using Michael's paint after he had he visited my studio here at Cal Lutheran, and um, you know he basically gave me a demonstration of a lot of it here with all these different colors, and so I was able to play with it. And I said, oh, you know, this is really neat, and and so he sent me a, a you know some tubes of of my of the palette that I used. And, you know, I sat down and I started working with it, and um, I was just amazed. And it's, it's really, uh, it's kind of hard to put into words, and, but I think most artists will understand when, they, when I say this, is that the paint does exactly what I need it to do, where I need it to, you know, how I need it to go down, and look how I need it to look. Uh, and, that's, it's just, and that's the only way I can actually put it. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, I've used so many other paints and, and, you know, again, this is not to say other paint makers are, are any good. It's just, this is the one that I found. It's kind of like the same thing with, with, uh, Rosemary's brushes. Um, Rosemary has, you know, made a great product of brush and that's what, why it works for me. And, um, you know, with, with Michael's paint, um, you know, just the, the consistency of the handmade paint and and the amount of pigment that's in it um, really works fantastic. Uh, and it does, and like I said, you know, it just does exactly what I need it to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, important for for all of us to use the best quality paint that we can afford. Absolutely. The paint is, is how we express ourselves. Of course, my my uh, my mentor Richard Schmidt um, has always said, always use the best materials you can afford to buy, and um, you know, and I and I don't think I, I really don't think Michael's paint is is the most expensive out there. Certainly not, um, and so it, it definitely is affordable for the artist. And you know, I think I think uh, each part of the painting, whether it's the paint, the brush. And the canvas, it's so integral to use what works the best for you because if you have an image uh, in your head or if you're trying to replicate something that's in front of you, uh, why make things harder on yourself by using uh, substandard quality uh, paint or substandard canvas? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like ice, trying to ice skate uphill. You know, you, you don't you don't want to you don't want to make things harder on yourself. So you want to make things technically easier for you so you can at least spend more time on the creative aspects of getting the, the, the shape, the value, the edge right, and not have to worry about, well, is the paint going to go on the way I want it to, or, or am I going to get, you know, am I going to get, uh, you know, am I going to get a, a good, accurate, um, 
you know value or uh or or you know the 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 uh the saturation quality of the, the chrome am i going to get the right you, those are the things you don't really want to have to worry about um when you're dealing with paint so yeah, that's, that's why i really enjoy using that to that point tony um one of the, the questions, and maybe you can give us some advice, and Michael, certainly you, you may be as well. Um, at some point, and, and maybe it, it maybe most artists, I don't know, uh, blame their skill level versus determining when a certain tool, if you will, is not working for them. So I guess what I'm asking is, is is there a point that we should be looking or advice that you can give us that tells us that the certain types of paint that we're looking for may be failing us before our skills actually do? Well, um, you know, I'll speak to this uh, from my own experience. Um, I, when I started painting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mostly self-taught in, in painting. I, I didn't really ever take any beginning classes or anything like that. You know, I, I got a lot of... Uh, tips from my brother and, and uh, my dad, who was also painting at the same time. I actually used my dad's studio when I was learning to paint. And I, you know, fortunately for me, I used a lot of his materials. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that, and I, I get on my dad about this all the time, but he, used, he used cheap materials. So, um, so I, I've, um, so, you know, when I was, you know, it was just, it, well, cheaper materials. I shouldn't say cheap, but um, you know. But when you're a student, you have this inclination to say, "Well, I don't want to waste money on paint, or I'm afraid to waste good paint, so you know, I'll just use the cheap stuff." And so I did. I mean, this is how I I sort of learned how to paint. But as my skill level in, started increasing, I would, was realizing that you know the student grade paint or the student uh, the student grade canvas wasn't doing or getting me the effects that I really wanted. So uh, as I got better at, at my craft, I started upgrading a little bit. And, if, you know, once I started, you know, I got out of uh, art school and I got out of college, I started, you know, working in the ad agencies and that kind of thing. So I started making a bit of money and I was able to afford better, better materials. And by that point, I was already pretty heavily into, you know, I've re I had read Richard's book, you know, back back to front so many times it wasn't even funny. And so that the whole thing about using the be best materials you can afford was was ringing in my head. So mm -hmm. you know, I was getting I wasn't using handmade paint, but I was certainly using the better brands, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the better mass production brands like Rembrandt and um, uh, Gamblin and uh, sort of that tier of paint, which are phenomenal paint, by the way, for the for the economical the economical choice. If, you know. Those those are the brands that that I was using for years, um, yeah. but uh, you know, and then and then, but now at this point in my my stage of where I want to take take my paint, uh, I I would you know I'm really looking to um, understand the paint uh, all the way back to the paint maker, and that's that's what's really great about being able to work with Michael and you know and just having some wonderful chats about about how the paint is made and, you know, where the pigments are from. And, you know, I'd actually done a little bit of, well, I tried to do a little bit of paint making myself, and that was, I just failed miserably. So I'm going to leave that to uh, guys like Michael who do it much better than I could. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, I think uh, if I if I might come in momentarily, I, I I think Tony has probably stated a very strong case for why artists should be painting with the finest materials they can get. But um, I find it baffling sometimes why artists almost stack the deck, deck against themselves because. As Tony pointed out, you, you want to give yourself as, as many helpers, as many many aids to get yourself to the to the to the, to the sort of the, the finished painting, which is your mind's eye, and to, to deliver that. And anything that uh, inhibits that, that stands in your way, that you then have to start fighting against, as a craftsperson, is not going to help you. And it's very obvious when you think about it. I think Tony used the analogy of ice skating uphill, which always makes me makes me laugh. I mean, I think of it, it's very similar to music, musicians. I mean, you don't hear of musicians uh, going out and buying plastic violins to try and turn themselves into great concert performers. It, it's, it's just ridiculous. And if you're trying to make your profession painting and you're, you regard yourself as a professional anyway, well, you do, you try and do your best, don't you? And for me to think that people could be painting with the material... And if they painted with another material, they could get 10% more performance out of it, and they still turn their back on it. I mean, that's that's next to masochism or craziness. That's absolutely against the whole thing you're trying to achieve. Um, and, the other thing, and the other thing is that because my paints are concentrate, it goes far further, dare I say, than anybody else's anyway. So even if someone says, well, I have to use a student paint because I don't have the money, well, I, I don't think in, in many cases my, my colors are twice the price of student paint, but I can promise you they'll go five times as far. And the other thing is, well, if you, if you can't afford to even try my paints, I'd invite you to and just paint a little bit smaller. Then you, you will realize it's, it's a bit like opening a third eye. You suddenly see things you've never seen before, and as I said, I like to shock people with colour. I mean, I, I I enjoy enormously, as you can probably detect, talking to artists like Tony, visiting the studios, and actually putting new tools into their hands. And you always get this reaction of like a wow. And it's for me, it's it's almost if it's the first time they've painted with proper paint, and this is how it should be. Um, People often ask me, what is it about my paint? What is it I put in to make it so different? And I say, it isn't so much what I put in as what I leave out. I only put in the goodness, the stuff that's meant to be there. I leave all the junk, the fillers and the stuff that oh, I'm not saying that other color makers aren't making a good paint. They just choose to make it differently from me. And I like to think I, I, I'm making the paint in the best possible way that I can. And so if you like, that's my own personal mission statement. Uh, and we thank you for that. So, I shall keep I, trying. Yes, <laughs> please do. Um, and before we um, go on, I want to, Anna, I'm trying to get back to your question that that you've posted. And I have to scroll up, so hang with me here a second, folks. This is a question from one of our listeners, Michael. Can you speak to the different properties of... Okay, Hold on. The different properties of uh, the various mixes of lead, white, and also can you share uh, knowledge on the binding uh, agent for 
for pigments, cold pressed versus alkali refined and linseed versus walnut versus poppy. Right. Sorry, what was the first question again? Uh, can you speak to the different properties of various mixes of the lead? Yeah, okay. Well, from an on-the-palate point of view, I think that lead white is probably the best all-round mixer. It does a lot of the, the bright, brilliant things that zinc does, but it, mm -hmm. it dries like a rock and has a different, it, you know, a different feel to the brush. Anyone who can get up close to a Rembrandt and, and, and see those uh, dabs of white that only he seems to be able to throw around you realize what a lead white can do. And even the stack lead white compared to the, the modern mass, you know, the, 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 the uh, stuff that we can no longer get or the stuff I'm, I'm sort of scrutinizing at the moment has a different handling quality. Uh, and, and this was the one that the old guys worked with, you know, the stack. Um, okay. So it might not work for some people. For me, it, it, I think it's wonderful, and I, I just love playing around with it. And I, I just love to be able to put another, another tool in the artist's hand, and for just people to be able to play around with it is, is the most important thing for me. Um, okay. Now the, the sorry, the latter part, the other, the other question was to do with oils. Oh yes, the, the linseed oil and stuff. If you um, cold press an oil, it, it is actually very dark. So cold pressed linseed oil looks like um, tea without any milk in. Um, I know there's probably not as much tea drunk in the United States as in the UK, but um, it's, it's, it's dark and frankly is not suitable in my opinion. I mean, you can read other reports from other companies perhaps that might contradict what I'm about to say. I don't feel it's suitable for painting or grinding with, with, with pigments, simply because that oil color, well, as the oil comes to the surface of the pigment, that natural oil color, which in this case is, is, is very dark, will um, become very apparent, particularly when the paint dries, and particularly if the paint should be kept in the dark, for instance. I mean, I can talk about that in a minute, because that's a rather mystical thing that happens. Um, we've, we then find that to get a linseed oil you, uh, of any uh, quality, it has to be further refined. And there's a number of processes, and as I state, I, I'm, I'm not a chemist, and I'm not going to pretend to be one. There's uh, alkaline methods that, that remove uh, the various mucilage and things that, sh that make the oil dark. And so you end up with a very light oil, and, and that's the oil that I regard as the most suitable for making paint with. Okay. Diana, I hope that answers your question. And Barbara, I um, believe you have a question for Tony. Well, I do. Um, but I think I think that you've explained it so well. But I guess I would like a maybe even a more personalized answer because I've worked with different paints and mediums, and what you have said about. Um, kind of the change that you've experienced when you started using Rosemary's brushes, for example. Um, when I started using those same brushes, I don't know which ones you used, but it was just a revelation to me of, of the way I could handle the paint and what I could do with those brushes versus what I was doing before. And you've described so eloquently, you know, what that paint can do for you when you're using Michael's paint. And I know a lot of people maybe who have an experience with paint would say, well, paint is just paint. And I think that we've really been 
covering that 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 well made paints and Michael's paints in particular are it's a unique experience. So I'm wondering what is it actually just besides the the tempting strength and and the mixtures you can get. I'm wondering what it actually feels like to use that paint. Um, maybe to clarify, for example, many years ago, uh, my studio was next door to my kid's bedroom, and they had asthma, and I had to use um, water-miscible paint, which many people work with very, very well. For me, I found that it was hard to mix. It was kind of had a different drag to it. It was an entirely different experience. Is there that, you know, when you're mixing the paints, does it feel radically different than than other paints? Or what can you tell us more about how it feels to use that paint, Michael's paint? Well, um, you know, painting is, if you think about painting, painting is uh, 50% uh, mixing the right color and mm -hmm. 50% putting it in the right place on the canvas. Now, Mixing the right color is the painting aspect. Putting it in the right pl place on the canvas is the drawing aspect of it. But putting it on canvas, <clears throat> actually um, the painting portion that, that makes it so important to use good paint is that it has to, like you said, it has to drag across the surface uh, well. And yeah. a, lot of paint, a lot of paint doesn't do that. Uh, it doesn't do it all that well. Um, you know, with Michael's paint, uh, when I'm mixing, when I'm mixing the paint, the consistency of the paint uh, for me works. Uh, it's just so nicely made. I mean, you know, a lot of the cheaper paints that I've used, a lot of times I'll run. You know, when I run workshops or classes, you know, students will come in with with either student grade paint or really low end uh, paint, and there'll be like lumps in the paint, or there'll be. It's almost like it's almost like they put sand in the paint, uh, and 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 a lot of times it's just you know you know so when you're mixing when you're mixing on your palette, um, you know I use a glass palette too, and I know a lot of people out there use uh, wooden palettes, so it's kind of a smooth surface, um, you know. But when you're mixing the paint, you, you want it to be able to mix smoothly, and you want to be able to get <clears throat> um, get the color that you're you're going after um, fairly quickly without having to you know, use your brush to actually grind the pigment again because it wasn't done mm -hmm. right the first time. So that's the mixing portion of, of it. And, you know, obviously um, Michael's paint, is, it's so well made that, again, I don't have to worry about having to, you know, re-grind re pigment because it's, it's so well done the first time. And then when I actually lay the paint on the canvas, um, you know, obviously half of that is, is how the paint's made, and the other half is the canvas I use. And, right. uh, you know, I'm using an oil-primed uh, canvas um, called Raphael Canvas um, that's sold through Jerry's Artorama. I, I, uh, you know, that canvas for me accepts the paint uh, exactly as I need it to. And then when I started using Michael's paint on it, it goes down. It just goes down so much more smoother, and and like what Michael's saying earlier, his paint extends much further. Uh, <clears throat> and for instance, his his transparent oxide red, which is a color I've used since day one. Um, but I started using. I was delighted to see Michael had transparent oxide red, and he's got it in a huge tube, which is even better because I love big tubes uh, for studio use. 
because I go through a lot of it. I go through a lot of transferred oxide red, and, and, and just I was always running out. So having big tubes is great. Um, but uh, so, but the difference is when I'm using transferred oxide red, a lot of times I'll draw with trans. I'll draw. Uh, I'll draw. You know, I'll make really long lines on my canvas with transparent oxide mm -hmm. red with a little bit of ultramarine blue, and it, it's amazing to see how far it extends. Uh, how much actually I can use of it without having to go back to my palette to grab more of it because you know his his pigments they just if they feel like they go on and on and on all the way down the canvas, mm -hmm. which which is so that's another aspect of it why it it works so well for me. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but I. But that's a great that's answer. I can, that's a great that's answer. That's as best as I can describe it. Yeah, and I, I was thinking as you described that, I also will will lay in some of my big shapes with transparent oxide red, and um, you know sometimes you're just going back and and you're trying to get more and more of that paint on there and and losing a sense of it, and and the cheaper paint uh, dries out faster. It just yes. doesn't. Yes. You end up wasting it because it doesn't it doesn't hold for several days. That's absolutely correct. Okay, uh, Tony, Tony, I guess. Go ahead. Let Sorry, me. Barbara or Blanche. I, there was a a good question. I'm trying to find it again on because it, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with chat because there's so many questions on there and I don't think we're going to get to all of them. And I do apologize uh, for that. Um, Can I just uh, say something, if I may? Sure, Michael. Go ahead while I'm trying to find the the one question I wanted to get yeah. in here. Not a problem. Um, I don't want listeners to think that uh, when this program ends, it's the the end of the dialogue. I see every single email my company gets, and I, I, I am the one who's responsible for answering all te technical questions. So. If you miss the opportunity, listeners, then you know please just email me, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer you as promptly as possible. That would be great. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, here's my the one that I wanted to get in. Um, it's it was asked by Creativity, and she's he or she, excuse me, is saying I always felt that, and this is for Tony. I always felt that uh, color or value was more important than color. And she's asking he or she's asking if they're wrong about that. Uh, well, it depends. I, I look at I look at both of them together, a color value because I call them color values. What color is it? What value is it? So they're both they're both of equal importance. I mean, you know, certainly if you're, you know, painting monochromatically or or, or in black and white, then obviously it's just value. Um, but you know, while values are very important. Um, you know, if you want if you want it to look like, uh, you know, what you're painting, it needs to be both need to be just as accurate. Um, mm -hmm. But I think probably in the grand scheme of things, you know, value is going to, um, you know, describe uh, sort of the pattern of your painting um, a little more in terms of uh, you know the, the lightness and the darkness of it, or or the you know strong contrasting shapes and that kind of thing. That's where value is going to play up. But, I mean, certainly color, I mean, to, at least to me, it's, it's, it's as important, which is why I, um, when I, when I teach and when I, the things that I look for is shape, um, you know, shape and what shape is it, what, what's the edge, and then what color value is it. 
uh, I grouped them together. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully that uh, makes sense. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, thank you for fielding that question for us. And uh, we've got about 22 minutes left. So what I want to do at this point is um, talk a little bit about the the raffle and the contest. And then if we have time, we'll have Tony and Michael uh, talk a little bit about the art scene and we'll get some last comments from everyone. Um, we're actually going to be raffling off two aprons, and these are two different contests. So um, if you would like to... Uh, when an, one of two aprons from us, it's very easy to do. There's a follow button that is underneath the ammo login. If you or the ammo lo- logo, if you select that follow button, you'll be eligible for the raffle, and we'll announce the winners on the July 19th show, um, which will be our next show that's coming up. So you have until July 19th to follow us. So that's a, a you know, somewhat very easy thing to do. All you need to do is follow us, and you'll be in that raffle. And then Tony and Michael have joined together and are graciously offering uh, a couple tubes of paint. Michael, uh, why don't you tell us about the paints that you're offering? Oh, yes, certainly. Well, since we've been talking about lapis and vermilion, I think that's the least I can do, throw in a a couple of those and maybe a few or others. Um, Oh, my goodness. We'll see. We'll see what what we have. But it'll be good. That's that's great. Thank you so much for that. And then, Tony, you're going to throw in your instructional DVD. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So to win these beautiful, wonderful prizes from Michael and Tony, you'll need to answer five questions correctly. And we will post these questions on the blo- on our Ammo blog um, this this evening. As soon as I get done with the the broadcast, I'll post the questions, and then again they'll be posted in a summary that I'll be writing up uh, tomorrow about the show. But the uh, questions, um, I guess we should go quickly through those. Is uh, one is what is the real and traditional chemistry of vermilion, and the second question is which is greater permanence, student oil paint, artist quality or artist quality paint when painted on cotton duck, and what could be described as automatically anatomically, excuse me, incorrect about Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam. And the fourth question is, is tempura paint egg-based mixable with oil paint? And the fifth question is, is it recommended or okay? I'm sorry. Michael, do you have your questions in front of you? The last question I think I wrote down wrong. Is it re- recommended I, I, and okay? Go ahead. I, I can't remember what that question was. <laughs> I think it's for, household, for us to use, I believe, it's oh, household yeah. and emulsion paints as primers and is other coats. Sorry, I, I lost the yeah, key on that for some reason. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking, my goodness, I just can't, can't remember what that question was, and I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> is, it is it okay to use household paints? emulsions, primers, whatever they might be in, in, in easel painting. And, uh, well, let's see what they think. Okay. So those five questions will be posted. The first person that answers, the first person that answers all five of those questions correctly will be the winner of some of Michael's oil paints and Tony's DVD. And, again, those will be on the Ammo blog, and you can find that at www.artistmentorsonline.com. Um, I think you can also get to our website by clicking on the ammo logo, too, if you're looking at the show page. 
So with that in mind, we've got uh, about 15 minutes left. So uh, Michael and Tony, why don't you give us um, your perspectives on the art scenes, both in the U.S. and U.K.? Okay, well, um, UK one, I'll be absolutely honest with you, I, I have the greatest difficulty at any single time actually trying to see what it is. Um, obviously, I, I know some very big household names who use my colour, Chris Ophelia, even Damien Hurst, um, Howard Hodgkin, Hockney, many of them, and they all do some remarkable and occasionally some strange things. Um, I don't know. I really am baffled. I think that there's obviously different conventions of paintings. There are some very fine portrait painters. Um, a very good example is, is a guy called Rupert Alexander, who's been producing fantastic work for a couple of decades. Rupert studied in, at the American Academy in Florence and now has a studio in London. And, and he, I mean, you can check him out online. We also feature him on our website. Great guy, great painter. Um, obviously paints in a very figurative, strong way. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many, it's so diverse, and it's almost impossible to try and sort of put your finger on exactly any particular movement or place and thing that's happening at the moment. And you know what? In some ways, I almost don't think it matters, because I think it's, it's down to the individual to decide where they should be and what they're doing and what's personal to them. I, I think there's, there's been too much preoccupation with trying to define define what art is and what art is not. Well, why try and dwell on the edge of, of, of the abyss when you can be certain when we know what art is? I, for my money, I, I would rather paint in, in, where I know art to be. Uh, for, for other people, they want to explore the intellectual aspect of what is art, and of course do. But uh -huh. anyway, that's, that's my opinion for what it's worth. I'd be delighted to hear Tony's. Uh, well, actually, um, you know, the, 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 you know, sort of the art industry and the art market, you know, this is a, this is a topic for, uh, well, you know, I'll just actually get right to it. This is a topic actually for a, an entire conference, which, um, which we're, we're actually, we're, we're, we're putting together. Cal Lutheran, um, has, uh, put together the representational art conference, which, uh, you know, is going to it, it's going to be a conference that's that's done under the banner of academia, and um, you know we're going to have some great uh, great panelists and speakers. Uh, you know, Dave Kassin and uh, um, you know we're going to have uh, John Nava, and we've got uh, critics like Jed Pearl and, and and these kind of these kind of people that are that are um, that are working. Uh, in in representational art, I mean, I, obviously, I come from the representational art world, and mm -hmm. you know, the the as I think probably most of our listeners uh, uh, that are listening probably come from representational art world, and you know, um, you know, here in Los Angeles, we have uh, uh, we're kind of a we're definitely the minority um, in the sense of the galleries and the museums. Uh, you know, the only time you really see representational work in the museums is, is things that are from, you know, the 19th century or, or before that. And, and that's actually even diminishing uh, here in some of our, our establishments here in, in uh, you know, like the L.A. County Museum of Art. Um, you know, representational art is, is sort of looked down upon. Um, and the conference is, is really going to focus on 
you know, people from all over the world are submitting papers to this, and, and they're going to come and give their uh, thoughts on, you know, what they feel representational art is and where it's going to go and where it's going in the future. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people are, are you know, a lot of the, the – sort of the art connoisseurs and the art lovers of the world, you know, the people that go to these institutions, I really feel that they're, um, you know, they're, they're kind of tired of, of the postmodernistic um, art world. I mean, I think, you know, they've, they're kind of tapped out in the sense of they've done as much controversy as they've already can. There's not too much more they can shock and surprise people with. So, you know, and there's a need to, to sort of, you know, go back to things that people can identify with, you know, people can identify with a figure or they can identify with a landscape. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean it has to look like it was done in the 19th century. I mean, certainly there's so many great artists um, working today that that, <clears throat> that paint in a contemporary fashion, but it's, it's, you know, the beautiful figures and beautiful still lifes and landscapes and, and um you know, so I, I, I'm I'm hoping to see uh, a big resurgence of representational art uh, here in the states. And uh, I mean, I know there's a big community of it already, but um, you know, I, I'd like to see it hit a little bit more of the mainstream. And I'm sort of on a on a quest for that myself to to sort of that working with some of our other LA artists here, like Alexi Steele and Jeremy Lipking. We're, we're kind of trying to, you know, just um, you know, just try to see what we can do about, you know, getting relevance um, and fair representation for representational art. Mm -hmm. And what are the dates for track? Uh, the track uh, conference is October 14th to the 17th, and it is in uh, beautiful Ventura, California, which is right on the beach, right on the sand. Uh, and the website for that is tractrack2012.org. And uh, it's going to be a very open-minded, um, you know, there's going to be very open-minded discussions. There's no, there's no heavy agendas or anything like that. Uh, we just want people to, uh, you know, to really um, get on board. I mean, this is, this is, you know, anybody that's, that's in representational art or that wants to be a, a representational artist or that is a representational artist, this is very important. This is a very important forum. Uh, and I think this is a way that we need to, we all need to come together and share ideas and not be divisive about what representational art is or should be or shouldn't be. You know, mm -hmm. divisiveness, divisiveness will never get us anywhere. You know, we need to come together and, and share ideas and thoughts and, and, you know, where where we can go. And uh, I'm excited about it. It's going to be a good time. And, uh, of course, we're going to, we're also uh, obviously a weekend with the Masters, um, Jeremy and Alexi and I are going to be doing a lecture on, on um, Nova Realism, and we're going to probably talk a lot more about representational art, where it's going, and that kind of thing. So that'll be kind of a precursor to uh, the track conference. We'll, we'll start things off with that. But um, So that'll be interesting and fun, too. Well, what's exciting about that, Tony, is you know, great representational art isn't about having a recognizable subject. It's about having a fantastic, strong, abstract design underlying all of that. And to do it well, you have to you have to see abstractly and then have the skills to to render that. Absolutely, I agree 100. Yeah. percent And that's that's one of the classes I teach. 
uh, at Cal Lutheran here, I teach uh, not only my teaching beginning painting to the to college students, but I also teach beginning design. And because yeah. I have a, obviously have a I have a big background in in graphic design, I have a degree in that, and uh, so I I. I I appreciate good design, good abstract design, uh, as well as anybody else, and and it's it's paramount. I mean, because every good painting is, you know, starts with an ab- abstract shapes, the big abstract shapes, a light and dark pattern. Um, yes. That's where it starts, and then of course, obviously, the rendering out, like you said, is is that's where the the chili meets the cheese. Well, in the art form coalesce, I, I taught at the University of New Mexico for a number of years, and the architecture program taught basic design, drawing, and you know how that would be translated into the three-dimensional world in building design. And there's so many overlaps between a, a beautiful building design and a good painting. So, absolutely. Yep. Okay, um, and Tony, just so you know, we're going to be um, broadcasting live from Weekend with the Masters, so maybe we can grab you guys the, either before or after you do your panel discussion, and um, you can tell us how it went and give us some more insight. That would be great. That would be cool. Uh, uh, although, uh, you know, if Lexi gets a hold of the microphone, I don't know. <laughs> it might just be him talking. <laughs> Which which is always great to listen to. Alexi's a fantastic speaker, and, and he's always entertaining. Okay, and, yeah, well, we're great. We would love to do it, and we actually, you know, we can also talk about possibly doing a show on this uh, in the future as well, because I'm sure we could fill up 90 minutes uh, of that on that discussion as well. Easily. <laughs> Easily, yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna. We've got about eight minutes left, and so I'm gonna go around the the panel and for one last uh, statement or comment. Before I do that, though, I wanted to tell everyone again, Michael's uh, website. Which, if your question did not get on here, and you have questions regarding uh, oil paints and things like that in general, Michael's website is www.michaelharding.co.uk, and a link to that will also appear in the blog where the questions will be for the, the contest. Uh, and also, Tony, Pro, um, web, Tony Pro's website is tonypro-fineart.com, and then artistmentorsonline.com is where you'll find the AMO blog. So, uh, Blanche, one last question or comment? Uh, yeah. Well, Michael, where can we, where can we buy your paint? We're di- We're all dying to have it now. <laughs> Tell oh, us. oh. Do we I'm go to your website? Or? Yeah. If you again, if you visit the website and on the on the home page, you'll see uh, a, a link saying uh, where to buy and what could be simpler. And I think we have currently something like sixty stores carrying our colours in North America now. Um, in certain areas, we're, we're better represented than others, but but hopefully you go on there. And still, if, if people can't find a store in their area, well, there are several mail-order companies there. And if you're still stuck, well, of course, email me, and I'll see what I can do to help. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I know everyone's tempted. We, we all have to have it now. <laughs> uh, well, can, I, can I just say one thing? Uh, as is obvious, I will be the, the, working with the Masters, and I will have out samples of every single one of my colors there, including the new uh, lead-white 
the stack level. Oh, right. Right. So, I mean, come along and see. Um, there'll be literally paint out for you to play with. Uh, so if anyone's doubting, they can come along and see it in the flesh. That's wonderful. Thank you. And Tony, and, of course, will be demonstrating. Yeah. Um, and also, um, just wanted to, to note, I was out looking around the other day, Michael, for your paints, and uh, Dick Blick actually had uh, the best listing, I think, of your paintings, as well as the, the most diverse, if you will. It seemed very uh, extensive. Great. That's encouraging to hear. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Barbara? Well, I just, um, in brief, wondered what makes you both happiest about the art industry. Uh, sorry, is that, who's that a question for? Barbara. For, for each of you. Like, um, Michael, you could talk maybe about the, the supply side, and um, but what, what does make you the happiest about the art industry? Um, well, I, I have recently been moved to tears, I must be absolutely honest. I... Uh, the, the artist I mentioned earlier who had painted the piano in London uh, the, in Steinway yeah. House and she made us crawl underneath to look up at even the underneath she'd painted and I'd sent her a text while I was looking at the Pacific Ocean last year and um, she'd even transferred that text into visual terms underneath the piano and, and had used the, the words I'd, I'd used in my text, telling her about the beautiful colours I could see in the ocean. And she was painting mm. the ocean by coincidence at the time under the piano, and she used the words. And when I realised, really, what effect I'd had upon her, her work and her life, um, yeah, I, 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 my eyes were completely glazed over, and I, I was trying to hide the fact, um, you know, men don't cry. But I, you know, it was it was wonderful to see that I can affect someone's life to such a degree, and and for me, I'll be honest, I I, I tend to find it a fairly easy thing to do, um, which is always I, remarkable for me that I can I can make something that seems to affect people so radically, and and uh, you know when I hear Tony talking, I I have to sometimes pinch myself and remind myself this is reality. It's extraordinary. Thank you. That's beautiful. Uh, Thank you. For me, uh, the uh, you know, for me, the um, the wonderful thing about the art industry, and or just you know, just in general about being an artist, um, I, you know, I, I, I get to do, you know, well, and I think this goes for any artist. Um, you know, we see life, we see things in this world uh, differently than everybody else. Um, Artists see beauty uh, in a way that that other people don't, and you know when I when I look at something, you know I, I can imagine it how it would be if I painted it, and through the magic of using uh, you know paints like the wonderful paint that Michael paints and, and the brushes that Rosemary makes, and you know I can I can make it look like what I see in my head, and it gives me a, a great joy to, to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I, I'd never regret the decision. Uh, when I was in college, I, I, was a business ma I was a business major for about three years. And, you know, it, things would just weren't clicking for me. And uh, 
I, I had always liked painting and, and drawing and, 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 you know, being, you know, doing design on a computer. And, and you know, I, I, I switched my majors, and it was the greatest thing I ever did. I, I never looked back. And, you know, to be able to come into, you know, I worked for many years, over 15 years in, in the entertainment industry and ad agencies and then for the studios, for, you know, for the movie studios themselves. And, you know, I've, I've been on my own now for three or four years. And uh, I got to tell you, I love just getting up every day and, and coming into my studio and, and, and just working in my studio every day. And um, I, I don't miss uh, sitting in, in uh, gridlock traffic in L.A. to get to, to Hollywood or West L.A. And, you know, and certainly, you know, a lot of people don't have that luxury um, and I and I totally understand that, especially in this economy. But um, you know, the, the a teaching position here has, has you know afforded me the chance to to be able to be in the studio every day and and and, and just uh, create. And when when you're creating something, you're you're really um, you're in another place. And uh, I, I'll never regret my decision to be an artist. And um, yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I just, I, I love what I do. Okay, well, we are quickly running out of time. Um, I think we have less than a minute, actually. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank all of the listeners for tuning in and um, also thanking Tony and Michael. Um, we look forward to hopefully having you all back again on the show. I hope you'll you'll take that invitation uh, up from us to do so. Of course. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, we we've really enjoyed it. We've appreciated it, and and again, thank you to all our listeners who um, have hung in with us. And I apologize for not getting all the questions on the air, but again, you can send those questions to Tony and to Michael uh, via their website. All the links will be on the Ammo blog tomorrow at, on art, or hopefully later this evening, as well as um, tomorrow in a, in a summary blog that we're going to do. The uh, podcast will be loaded up to iTunes, and there will also be um, some podcasts out at Buzzsprout and a couple other places. So check in for that. And, again, thank you, everybody, and have a good evening. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Thanks.